Chapter Thirteen of A Short Account of the History of Mathematics. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading is by Paul King, pjk.scripps.mit.edu forward slash pkj. A Short Account of the History of Mathematics by W. W. Rouse Ball. Chapter Thirteen, The Close of the Renaissance, circa fifteen eighty six to sixteen thirty seven. The closing years of the Renaissance were marked by a revival of interest in nearly all branches of mathematics and science. As far as pure mathematics is concerned, we have already seen that during the last half of the sixteenth century there had been a great advance in algebra theory of equations and trigonometry and we shall shortly see in the second section of this chapter that in the early part of the seventeenth century some new processes in geometry were invented if however we turn to applied mathematics it is impossible not to be struck by the fact that even as late as the middle or end of the sixteenth century no marked progress in the theory had been made from the time of archimedes statics of solids and hydrostatics remained in much the state in which he had left them while dynamics as a science did not exist it was stevinus who gave us the first impulse to the renewed study of statics and galileo who laid the foundation of dynamics and to their works the first section of this chapter is devoted the development of mechanics and experimental methods stevinus Simon Stevenus was born in Bruges in 1548 and died at The Hague in the 17th century. We know very little of his life save that he was originally a merchant's clerk at Antwerp and at a later period of his life was the friend of Prince Maurice of Orange by whom he was made quartermaster general of the Dutch army. To his contemporaries he was the best known for his works on fortifications and military engineering, and the principles he laid down are said to be in accordance with those which are now usually accepted. To the general populace he was also well known on account of his invention of a carriage which was propelled by sails. This ran on the seashore, carried twenty-eight people, and easily outstripped horses galloping by the side. His model of it was destroyed in 1802 by the French when they invaded Holland. It was chiefly owing to the influence of Stevenus that the Dutch and French began a proper system of bookkeeping in the national accounts. I have already alluded to the introduction in his arithmetic published in 1585 of exponents to mark the power to which quantities were raised he is said to have suggested the use of fractional but not negative exponents for instance he wrote three x squared minus five x plus one as three followed by two in a circle for x squared minus five followed by a one in a circle signifying x plus one followed by a solid dot in a circle his notation for decimal fractions was of a similar character in the same book he likewise suggested a decimal system of weights and measures he also published a geometry which is ingenious though it does not contain many results which were not previously known 
It is, however, on his Statics and Hydrostatics, published in Flemish at Leiden in 1586, that his fame will rest. In this work he enunciated the Triangle of Forces, a theorem which some think was the first propounded by Leonardo da Vinci. Stevenus regarded this as the fundamental proposition of the subject. Previous to the publication of his work, the science of statics had rested on the theory of the lever. But since then, it has been usual to commence by proving the possibility of representing forces by straight lines, and so of reducing many theorems to geometrical propositions, and in particular to obtaining in that way a proof of the parallelogram, which is equivalent to the triangle, of forces. Stevenus is not clear in his arrangement of the various propositions and discussions of their sequence, and the new treatment of the subject was not definitely established before the appearance in 1687 of Varignon's work on mechanics. Stevenus also found the force which must be exerted along the line of the greatest slope to support a given weight on an inclined plane, a problem the solution of which had long been in dispute. He further distinguished between stable and unstable equilibrium. In hydrostatics, he discussed the question of the pressure which a fluid can exercise, and explained the so-called hydrostatic paradox. Stevenus was somewhat dogmatic in his statements, and allowed no one to differ from his conclusions. And those, says he in one place, who cannot see this, may the author of nature have pity upon their unfortunate eyes, for the fault is not in the thing, but in the sight which we are not able to give them. Galileo Just as the modern treatment of statics originates with Stevenus, so the foundation of the science of dynamics is due to Galileo. Galileo Galilei, born in Pisa in February 18, 1564, and died near Florence on January 8, 1642. His father, a poor descendant of an old and noble Florentine house, was himself a fair mathematician and a good musician. Galileo was educated at the monastery in Vallabrosa, where his literary ability and mechanical ingenuity attracted considerable attention. He was persuaded to become a novitate of the order in 1580, but his father, who intended him to be a doctor, at once removed him and sent him in 1581 to the University of Pisa to study medicine. It was there that he noticed that the great bronze lamp, which still hangs from the roof of the cathedral, performed its oscillations in equal times, quite independently of whether the oscillations were large or small, a fact which he verified by counting his pulse. He had been hitherto purposely kept in ignorance of mathematics, but one day, by chance, hearing a lecture on geometry, he was so fascinated by the science that he thenceforward devoted all of his spare time to its study, and finally he got leave to discontinue his medical studies. He left university in 1586 and almost immediately commenced his original researches. He published in 1587 an account of the hydrostatic balance, and in 1588 an essay on the center of gravity in solids. The fame of these works secured for him the appointment to the mathematical chair at Pisa, the stipend, as was the case with most professorships, being very small. 
During the next three years he carried on from the leaning tower that series of experiments on falling bodies which established the first principles of dynamics. Unfortunately, the manner in which he promulgated his discoveries and the ridicule he threw on those who opposed him gave not an unnatural offence, and in 1591 he was obliged to resign his position. At this time he seems to have been much hampered by want of money. Influence was, however, exerted on his behalf with the Venetian Senate, and he was appointed professor at Padua, a chair which he held for eighteen years, 1592 to 1610. His lectures there seem to have been chiefly on the mechanics and hydrostatics, and the substance of them is contained in his treatise on mechanics, which was published in 1612. In these lectures he repeated his Pisan experiments, and demonstrated that falling bodies did not, as was then believed, descend with velocities proportional, amongst other things, to their weights. He further shewed that, if it were assumed that they were descended with a uniformly accelerated motion, it was possible to deduce the relations of connecting velocity, space, and time, which did actually exist. At a later date, by observing the times of descent of bodies sliding down inclined planes, he shewed that this hypothesis was true. He also proved that the path of a projectile was a parabola, and in doing so implicitly used the principles laid down in the first two laws of motion as enunciated by Newton. He gave an accurate definition of momentum, which some writers have thought may be taken to imply a recognition of the truth of the third law of motion. The laws of motion are, however, nowhere enunciated in the precise and definite form, and Galileo must be regarded rather as preparing the way for Newton than as being himself the creator of the science of dynamics. In statics, he laid down the principle that in machines what was gained in power was lost in speed, and in the same ratio. In the statics of solids, he found the force which can support a given weight on an inclined plane. In hydrostatics, he propounded the more elementary theorems on pressure and on floating bodies, while among hydrostatical instruments he invented the thermometer, though in a somewhat imperfect form. It is, however, as an astronomer that most people regard Galileo, and, though strictly speaking, his astronomical researches lie outside the subject matter of this book, it may be interesting to give the leading facts. It was in the spring of 1609 that Galileo heard that a tube containing lenses had been made by Lippershey in Holland, which served to magnify objects seen through it. This gave him the clue, which he constructed a telescope of that kind which still bears his name, and of which an ordinary opera glass is an example. Within a few moments he had produced instruments which were capable of magnifying 32 diameters, and within a year he had made and published observations on the solar spots, the lunar mountains, Jupiter's satellites, the phases of Venus, and Saturn's ring. Honours and emoluments were showered on him, and he was enabled in 1610 to give up his professorship and retire to Florence. In 1611 he paid a temporary visit to Rome, and exhibited in the gardens of the Vatican the new worlds revealed by the telescope.
it would seem that galileo had always believed in the copernican system but was afraid of promulgating it on account of the ridicule it excited the existence of jupiter's satellite seemed however to make this truth almost certain and he now boldly preached it the orthodox party resented his action and on february twenty fourth sixteen sixteen the inquisition declared that to suppose the sun the centre of the solar system was absurd heretical and contrary to holy scripture the edict of march fifth sixteen sixteen which carried this into effect had never been repealed though it has long been tacitly ignored it is well known that toward the middle of the seventeenth century the jesuits evaded it by treating the theory as an hypothesis from which though false certain results would follow in january sixteen thirty two galileo published his dialogues on the system of the world in which in clear and forcible language he expounded the copernican theory in these apparently through jealousy of kepler's fame he does not so much as mention kepler's laws the first two of which had been published in sixteen o nine and the third in sixteen nineteen and he rejects kepler's hypothesis that the tides are caused by the attraction of the moon he rests the proof of the copernican hypothesis on the absurd statement that it would cause tides because different parts of the earth would rotate with different velocities he was more successful in shewing that mechanical principles would account for the fact that a stone thrown straight up would fall again to the place from which it was thrown a fact which had previously been one of the chief difficulties in the way of any theory which supposed the earth to be in motion the publication of this book was certainly contrary to the edict of sixteen sixteen galileo was at once summoned to rome forced to recant do penance and was only released on good behaviour the documents recently printed shew that he was threatened with the torture but that there was no intention of carrying the threat into effect when released he again took up his work on mechanics and by sixteen thirty six had finished a book which was published under the title discorsi in torno ad du nuove scienze at leyden in sixteen thirty eight in sixteen thirty seven he lost his sight but with the aid of pupils he continued his experiments on mechanics and hydrostatics and in particular on the possibility of using a pendulum to regulate a clock and on the theory of impact an anecdote of this time has been preserved which may or may not be true but is sufficiently interesting to bear repetition according to one version of the story galileo was one day interviewed by some members of a florentine guild who wanted their pumps altered so as to raise water to a height which was greater than thirty feet and thereupon he remarked it might be desirable to first find out why the water rose at all a bystander interfered and said there was no difficulty about that because nature abhorred a vacuum yes said galileo but apparently it is only a vacuum which is less than thirty feet his favorite pupil torricelli was present and thus had his attention directed to the question which he subsequently elucidated galileo's work may i think be fairly summed up by saying that his researches on mechanics are deserving of high praise and that they are memorable for clearly enunciating the fact that science must be founded on laws obtained by experiment his astronomical observations and his deductions therefrom were also excellent 
and were expounded with a literary and scientific skill which leaves nothing to be desired but though he produced some of the evidence which placed the copernican theory on a satisfactory basis he did not himself make any special advance in the theory of astronomy francis bacon the necessity of an experimental foundation for science was advocated with even greater effect by galileo's contemporary francis bacon lord verulam who was born in London on January 22, 1561, and died on April 9, 1626. He was educated at Trinity College, Cambridge. His career in politics and at the bar culminated in his becoming Lord Chancellor with the title Lord Verulam. The story of his subsequent degradation for accepting bribes was well known. His chief work is the Novum Organum, published in 1620, which he lays down the principles which should guide those who are making experiments on which they propose to find a theory of any branch of physics or applied mathematics. He gave rules by which the results of induction could be tested, hasty generalizations avoided, and experiments used to check one another the influence of this treatise in the eighteenth century was great but it is probable that during the preceding century it was little read and the remark repeated by several french writers that bacon and descartes are the creators of modern philosophy rests on a misapprehension of bacon's influence on his contemporaries any detailed account of this book belongs however to the history of scientific ideas rather than to that of mathematics before leaving the subject of applied mathematics, I may add a few words on the writings of Guldinus, Wright, and Snell. Guldinus Habakkuk Guldinus, born in St. Gall on June 12, 1577, and died at Graz, November 3, 1643, was of Jewish descent, but was brought up as a Protestant. He was converted to Roman Catholicism and became a Jesuit when he took the Christian name of Paul and it was to him that the Jesuit colleges in Rome and Graz owed their mathematical reputation. The two theorems known by the name of Pappus, to which I alluded, were published by Guldinus in the fourth book of his De Centro Gravitatis, Vienna, 1635-1642. Not only were the rules in question taken without acknowledgment from Pappus, according to Montecla, the proof of them was given by Goldenus was faulty, even though he was successful in applying them to the determination of the volumes and surfaces of certain solids. The theorems were, however, previously unknown, and their enunciation excited considerable interest. Wright. I may here also refer to Edward Wright, who is worthy of mention for having put the art of navigation on a scientific basis. Wright was born in Norfolk at about 1560 and died in 1615. He was educated at Caius College, Cambridge, of which society he was subsequently a fellow. He seems to have been a good sailor, and he has special talent for the construction of instruments. About 1600, he was elected lecturer on mathematics by the East India Company, he then settled in London and shortly afterwards was appointed mathematical tutor to Prince Henry of Wales, the son of James I. 
his mechanical ability may be illustrated by an orrery of his construction by which it was possible to predict eclipses for over seventeen thousand years in advance it was shewn in the tower as a curiosity as late as sixteen seventy five in the maps in use before the time of gerard marcator a degree whether of lat latitude or longitude had been represented in all cases by the same length and the course to be pursued by a vessel was marked on the map by a straight line joining the ports of arrival and departure mercator had seen that this led to considerable errors and had realized that to make this method of tracing the course of a ship at all accurate the space assigned to the on the map to a degree of latitude ought to gradually increase as the latitude increased using this principle he had empirically constructed some charts which were published about fifteen sixty or fifteen seventy wright set himself the problem to determine the theory on which such maps should be drawn and succeeded in discovering the law of the scale of the maps though his rule is strictly correct for small arcs only the result was published in the second edition of blundeville's exercises in fifteen ninety nine wright published his certain errors in navigation detected and corrected in which he explained the theory and inserted a table of meridional parts the reasoning shews considerable geometrical power in the course of the work he gives the declinations of thirty-two stars explains the phenomenon of the dip parallax and refraction and adds a table of magnetic declinations but he assumes the earth to be stationary in the following year he published some maps constructed on his principle in these the northernmost point of australia is shewn the latitude of london is taken to be fifty one degrees thirty two minutes snell a contemporary of guldinus and wright was wilbrode snell whose name is still well known through his discovery in sixteen nineteen of the law of refraction in optics snell was born at leyden in fifteen ninety one and occupied a chair of mathematics at the university there and died there on october thirtieth sixteen twenty six he was one of those infant prodigies who occasionally appear at the age of twelve he was acquainted with the standard mathematical works i will here only add that in geodesy he laid down the true principles for measuring the arc of a meridian and in spherical trigonometry he discovered the properties of the polar or supplemental triangle residual interest in pure geometry the close of the sixteenth century was marked not only by the attempt to find a theory of dynamics based on laws derived from experiment but also by a revived interest in geometry this was largely due to the influence of kepler kepler Johann Kepler, one of the founders of modern astronomy, was born of humble parents near Stuttgart on December 27, 1571, and died at Ratisbon on November 15, 1630. He was educated under Mestelin at Tübingen, in fifteen ninety three he was appointed professor at graz where he made the acquaintance of a wealthy and beautiful widow whom he married but found too late that he had purchased his freedom from pecuniary troubles at the expense of domestic happiness 
In 1599 he accepted an appointment as assistant to Tycho Brahe, and in 1601 succeeded his master as astronomer to the Emperor Rudolf II. But his career was dogged by bad luck. First his stipend wasn't paid, next his wife went mad and then died, and though he married again in 1611 this proved even more unfortunate venture than before, for though to secure a better choice he took the precaution to make a preliminary selection of eleven girls whose merits and demerits he carefully analyzed in a paper which is still extant he finally selected the wrong one while to complete his discomfort he was expelled from his chair and narrowly escaped condemnation for heterodoxy during this time he depended for his income on telling fortunes and casting horoscopes for as he says nature which has conferred upon every animal the means of existence has designed astrology as an adjunct and ally to astronomy he seems however to have no scruple in charging heavily for his services and to the surprise of his contemporaries was found at, at his death to have a considerable hoard of money he died while on a journey to try and recover for the benefit of his children some of the arrears of his stipend in describing Galileo's work, I alluded briefly to the three laws in astronomy that Kepler had discovered, and in connection with which his name will be always associated, and I have already mentioned the prominent part he took in bringing logarithms into general use on the continent. These are familiar facts, but it is not known so generally that Kepler was also a geometrician and algebraist of considerable power and that he derogues and perhaps galileo may be considered as forming a connecting link between the mathematicians of the renaissance and those of modern times kepler's work in geometry consists rather in certain general principles which he laid down and illustrated by a few cases than in any systematic exposition of the subject in a short chapter on conics inserted in his paralipomena published in 1604 he lays down what has been called the principle of continuity and gives an example of the statement that a parabola is at once the limiting case of an ellipse and of a hyperbola he illustrates the same doctrine by reference to the foci of conics the word focus was introduced by him and he also explains that the parallel line should be regarded as meeting at infinity in his stereometrica which was published in 1615 he determines the volume of certain vessels and the areas of certain surfaces by means of infinitesimals instead of by the long and tedious method of exhaustions these investigations as well as those of 1604 arose from a dispute with a wine merchant as to the proper way of gauging the contents of a cask this use of infinitesimals was objected to by guldinus and other writers as inaccurate but though the methods of kepler are not altogether free from objection he was substantially correct and by applying the law of continuity to infinitesimals he prepared the way for cavalieri's method of indivisibles and the infinitesimal calculus of newton and leibniz kepler's work on astronomy lies outside the scope of this book i will mention only that it was founded on the observations of tycho brahe whose assistant he was
his three laws of planetary motion were the result of many and laborious efforts to reduce the phenomenon of the solar system to certain simple rules the first two were published in sixteen o nine and stated that the planets describe ellipses around the sun the sun being a focus and that the line joining the sun to any planet sweeps over equal areas in equal times the third was published in sixteen nineteen and stated that the square of the periodic times of the planets are proportional to the cubes of the major axes of their orbits i thought to add that he attempted to explain why these motions took place by a hypothesis which is not very different from descartes theory of vortices kepler also devoted considerable time to the elucidation of theories of visions and refractions in optics while the conception of the geometry of the greeks were being extended by kepler a frenchman whose name until recently was almost unknown was inventing a new method of investigating the subject a method which is now known as projective geometry this was the discovery of desrogues whom i put with some hesitation at the close of this period and not among the mathematicians of modern times desargues Gerard de Zagre, born at Lyon in 1593 and died in 1662, was by profession an engineer and architect, but gave some courses of gratuitous lectures in Paris from 1626 to about 1630, which made a great impression upon his contemporaries. Both Descartes and Pascal had a high opinion of his work and abilities, and both made considerable use of the theorems he had enunciated in sixteen thirty six desargues issued a work on perspective but most of his researches were embodied in his bourrion project on conics published in sixteen thirty nine a copy of which was discovered by charles in eighteen forty five i take the following summary of it from charles taylor's work on conics desargues commences with the statement of the doctrine of continuity as laid down by kepler thus the points at the opposite ends of a straight line are regarded as coincident parallel lines are treated as meeting at a point at infinity and parallel planes on a line at infinity while a straight line may be considered as a circle whose centre is at infinity the theory of involution of six points with its special cases is laid down and the projective property of pencils in involution is established the theory of polar lines is expounded and its analogue in space suggested a tangent is defined as the limiting case of a secant and an asymptote as a tangent at infinity desargues shews that the lines which join four points in a plane determine three pairs of lines in involution on any transversal and from any conic through the four points another pair of lines can be obtained which are in involution with any two of the former he proves that the points of intersection of the diagonals and the two pairs of opposite sides of any quadrilateral inscribed in a conic are a conjugate triad with respect to the conic and when one of the three points is infinity its polar is a diameter but he fails to explain the case in which the quadrilateral is a parallelogram although he had formed the conception of a straight line which was wholly at infinity 
the book therefore may be fairly said to contain the fundamental theorems on involution homology poles and polars and perspective the influence exerted by the lectures of Desargues on Descartes, Pascal, and the French geometricians of the 17th century was considerable, but the subject of projective geometry soon fell into oblivion, chiefly because the analytical geometry of Descartes was so much more powerful as a method of proof or discovery. The researches of Kepler and Desargues will serve to remind us that the geometry of the Greeks was not capable of much further extension. Mathematicians were now beginning to seek new methods of investigation, and were extending the conceptions of geometry. The invention of analytical geometry and of the infinitesimal calculus temporarily diverted attention from pure geometry but at the beginning of the present century there was a revival of interest in it and since then it has been a favorite subject of study with many mathematicians mathematical knowledge at the close of the renaissance thus by the beginning of the seventeenth century we may say that the fundamental principles of arithmetic algebra theory of equations and trigonometry had been laid down and the outlines of the subject as we know them have been traced. It must be, however, remembered that there were no good elementary textbooks on these subjects, and a knowledge of them was therefore confined to those who could extract it from the ponderous treatises in which it lay buried. Though much of the modern algebraical and trigonometrical notation had been introduced, it was not familiar to mathematicians, nor was it even universally accepted, and it was not until the end of the 17th century that the language of these subjects was definitely fixed. Considering the absence of good textbooks, I am inclined rather to admire the rapidity with which it came into universal use than to cavil at the hesitation to trust it alone which many writers shewed if we turn to applied mathematics we find on the other hand that the science of statics had made but little advance in the eighteen centuries that had elapsed since the time of archimedes while the foundations of dynamics were laid by galileo only at the close of the sixteenth century in fact as we shall see later it was not until the time of newton that the science of mechanics was placed on a satisfactory basis the fundamental conceptions of mechanics are difficult but the ignorance of the principles of the subject shewn by mathematicians of this time is greater than would have been anticipated from their knowledge of pure mathematics with this exception we may say that the principles of analytical geometry and of the infinitesimal calculus were needed before there was likely to be much further progress the former was employed by descartes in sixteen thirty seven the latter invented by newton and possibly independently by leibniz some thirty or forty years later and their introduction may be taken as marking the commencement of the period of modern mathematics end of section 19 recorded by paul king oakville ontario http pjk.scripts.mit.edu forward slash pkj